Welcome to this episode of the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. Here is your host, Pastor Eric Stillman. Well, this morning I am going to be in the final week of the sermon series that I've been doing this summer called Masterclass Storyteller, looking at the parables that Jesus taught while he was here on earth, the stories that he told and what they have to teach us about what it means to know and follow God. And the term parable, if you are unfamiliar with it, the best definition I have found comes from Pastor John MacArthur. Uh, He defined parable as this, an ingeniously simple word picture illuminating a profound spiritual lesson. It's a very simple word picture. Jesus would say things like, the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field, or God is like a landowner who went away for a journey and left his servants in charge. Uh, Things like that. It would be very simple word pictures taught in such a way that they would stick in the minds of his listeners, but they contain within them a very profound spiritual lesson. And he taught in this way so that those who thought they were all self-righteous and more important than Jesus would dismiss Jesus as basic and, and they would miss the deeper lesson, while those who had a childlike faith and curiosity would come to Jesus and would learn more about what he really meant. So this morning is going to be the last sermon in the series, and I saved the best for last. In my opinion, it's the greatest parable that Jesus ever told, one of the greatest stories that I believe exists. It's the parable of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15. So my approach this morning is going to be, I'm going to read through Luke 15 in its context, uh, stopping along the way to kind of give some background that'll help you understand um, what this parable means, and then at the end, I'll give you some implications for our lives today. So let's begin in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Let me stop there. So in Luke 15, you have Jesus with his normal audience. It's a mix of religious people, the the scribes who were the teachers of the law, the Pharisees who were the religious leaders, and then you also have the sinners, right? The Those who were on the margins, those who were further from God, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, all those people who just didn't quite measure up to what the religious elites thought was a faithful person. And they're all mixed together. And of course, the religious people are muttering. They're, they're upset with Jesus, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You half expect Jesus to turn them and say, what is your problem, right? I mean, their attitude, of course, is this one of building bridges and boundaries and keeping out those who are far from God, which seems completely contrary to the way Jesus is behaving. So what is it about the Pharisees? Why do they have such an issue with Jesus? Why do these religious leaders look at Jesus with such disdain? Well, remember their agenda. In those days, the Jews were under Roman oppression, Okay, they were under Roman occupation, and the Pharisees believed that once the Jewish people were holy enough, once they were pure and righteous enough, then the Messiah would come and would rescue them from Roman oppression. And so, they wanted everyone to become holy and pure and follow God's laws. And so, as a result, they looked down on anyone who was not really following God's laws. They looked down on anyone who was not concerned with holiness. They believed that using guilt and shame would motivate people to change, to become more holy, more like them. 
And so they believed that any religious leader who came and was not teaching like they were and treating their irreligious people like them, there's something wrong with them. They need to be stopped. And so Jesus, who obviously is pulling to himself all of the people on the margins, all the oppressed, all the sinners are coming, and they love Jesus. And they're responding to him. The Pharisees saw Jesus as a threat because he's not lining up with what they believe God's will is, that people just need to get holy and pure and get their lives right, and then the Messiah will come. Little did they know that the Messiah was right there in their midst. So Jesus responds to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law by telling them, first he tells them two shorter parables before launching into the parable of the prodigal son. So let me just read the two shorter parables that he begins with. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus, full of compassion even towards the Pharisees, doesn't tell them off. Instead, he says, listen, when you lose something, don't you search for it? When you lose something of value, don't you go and look for it? And when you find it, don't you celebrate? Don't you want to share the good news? When you lose a sheep and you find it, when you lose a coin and you find it, don't you celebrate when you have found it? How much more a person than a coin? How much more a person than a sheep when they are lost and then they are found? There is a party in heaven that God and all of heaven rejoices when one of his lost children come home. And then he continues to tell them the parable of the prodigal son. So let's begin in verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. So Jesus sets it up by saying there was a father who had two sons, and the younger son one day comes to the father and he says, Give me my share of the inheritance, my share of the estate. Now, you probably don't need to know first century Palestinian context to understand that usually you do not get your inheritance until what? Until the parents die. You usually do not get your share of the estate until the father has died. So clearly the younger son is telling the father, Dad, you are as good as dead to me. I don't want you anymore. I don't want a relationship with you anymore. I just want what's coming to me. I just want the money that's coming to me when you die. My share of the estate. Obviously, Jesus is setting this up to shock his audience into seeing this younger son as about as shameful as it can possibly get. A couple other things, though, just to emphasize the shame of what's going on here. First of all, when the father dies, 
who would get the lion's share of the inheritance? Who would be first in line? The older son, not the younger son. So even, not only is he bringing shame upon the father, but he's also offending his older brother by saying, I want my share of the inheritance now. And again, this culture is a culture where shame and honor, it's one of those shame and honor cultures. Shame is a big thing. Honor is a big thing. And this son is bringing incredible shame on his father and on himself by the way he is acting. What, would, what do you think Jesus' audience would have expected the father to do in response to this? He would have maybe beaten the son, disowned the son, sent him away. But instead, Jesus tells this parable and has the father give the son what he has asked, his share of the inheritance, and he lets him go. And it says the son goes off to a distant country where he proceeds, it says, to spend the inheritance. He liquidates the estate and he spends it all in wild living. Now, Jesus is teaching and across the lake from where he's teaching, there is a land called Susita, which is a Gentile country. It was known for its theaters and its temples, its scantily clad women, all the things that would have probably tempted a Jewish youth looking out across the lake and hearing the noises, right? And Jesus here is probably teaching this in such a way that any Jewish youth would identify, a Jewish man or woman would identify. He's like, I want to go there. I, I'm, I'm sick of this. I don't want to be with you anymore. I want to go off because it sounds a lot more fun over there. And so he leaves. And he spends all he got from the Father in wild living. Let's continue in verse 14 to 19. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So the younger son lives it up in wild living until the day that the money runs out and then the famine hits the land and his friends probably desert him because he doesn't have the money anymore and he is lost. He is broke. And the only way that he can find anything is to hire himself out to go feed pigs. Now, again, to a Jewish audience listening to Jesus I mean, this is the lowest of the low. The pigs are unclean animals. Any Jewish boy would stay away. They don't eat the pork from a pig. They don't associate with pigs. And here Jesus is telling the story in such a way to show how this shameful boy has gone so low that now he wishes he could feed the scraps that the pigs are eating. Finally, muddy and smelly, the son comes to his senses. And he says, what am I doing What am I doing here in this pigsty? Even my father's hired men have enough food to eat. I could go back to my father and just say, please just hire me. I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore, but at least just hire me and I would have food to spare. So he rehearses this speech and he sets out for home. Again, imagine Jesus is telling the story with these Pharisees and tax collectors and this whole mix of audience here. What do you think their expectation would have been of how the father would respond to this son coming home after he has brought such shame on the father and his entire family. And now he comes back 
would you imagine that he would have expected the father to maybe have mercy and put him to work? Or would he just reject him and say, get out of here, you're no son of mine. Imagine their surprise when Jesus tells them the rest of the story. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. So the son, this shameful son, muddy and smelling and disgusting, having brought shame on his family, is walking home, rehearsing his speech of what he's going to tell his father, of how he doesn't deserve to be called a son. Just hire me as one of your hired men. And what happens? The father evidently has been watching for his son, and he sees him from a distance, and he runs to him. And he throws his arms around him and he kisses him. Once again, in this culture, fathers do not run. They've got their robes on. They are dignified. They do not run, especially after a son who has brought dishonor on them. How shameful this father's behavior. Running out to his son, throwing his arms around him to welcome him back, to embrace him, to kiss him, to cover him with kisses. And the the son launches into his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off and he says, quick, bring my best robe. Bring a ring and put it on his finger. Bring my sandals and put them on his feet. Kill the fattened calf. Throw a feast and celebrate. This son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Can you imagine being a tax collector or a prostitute there? All your life, you have been told by the religious elite that you are headed for hell, that you are not right with God, that you need to get your life together before God will accept you. All your life, you have been told that you are on the outside. You do not measure up. And here comes Jesus saying those shameful sinners who have rejected the Father and run off and squandered everything in wild living, the moment they turn around and come home, the Father runs out and there's full forgiveness and reconciliation. And a party is thrown for them. It's not just kiss my feet, now go serve. It's here's my best robe. Here's the ring on your finger. And here's the sandals on your feet. Let's throw a party. You are my son. You were lost. And now you are found again. But imagine being a Pharisee, a teacher of the law out there. How shameful. Is Jesus really saying that this is what God is like? 
These people need to get their lives right. These sinners need to pull themselves together. They don't need to hear a message like this. They don't need to hear a message about a father who accepts them even though they have done terrible things. No, they need to know that they have done terrible things. And they need to get to work making it right with God. These Pharisees would have heard Jesus and said, no, you are, this is not God. This is not the way God acts. And that's why the story doesn't end here. The story doesn't end here. Because remember, Jesus is telling this in response to the Pharisees, all the religious elites who are muttering at him, saying, oh, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so he continues to tell the story of the older brother. The younger brother comes back home. Father throws a party. What about the older brother? Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you killed a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Remember, Jesus is telling this story to the religious elites who can't stand these irreligious people, who think that they are the reason that God is keeping them under Roman oppression, the reason that the Messiah has not come, that they need to get their lives together and become holy and pure like the Pharisees are. And here comes Jesus saying that the Father throws a party for every one of these people whenever they make the slightest turn back to the Father, to God. Full forgiveness and full reconciliation. And the Pharisees can't stand this message. And so tenderly, with compassion, Jesus explains the other part of the story to them. And he says, no, you are like the older brother. Angry, refusing to come into the party. You think that you've been serving the Father all these years, but you do not know the Father. You don't know his heart, evidently. You don't know his heart if this is the way you look at the younger brother. You don't know the compassion and grace of your Father if you want to banish the younger brother forever if you will not forgive and receive him back into fellowship. You don't know the Father. You think you've been working obediently all these years, but you haven't. You're mistaken. You do not know the Father. You're missing out on the party. You're so angry. You're missing out on the party, on the joy of the Lord. You're missing out on the joy of your Father. You think God is a God of boundaries, and not a God of grace. You think God is a God that just keeps people out by his laws as opposed to welcoming them back by his grace. Lord, may we be a church like the father and not like the older brother. You know, what are people going to experience when they walk in these doors or when they communicate with you 
I begin experience the older brother putting up the boundaries saying, I'm sorry, your type is not welcome here. You need to first get yourself together before you come here, before you come into fellowship with me. Or they're going to experience the father who runs and welcomes those who he has lost back into fellowship with him, even when they don't deserve it. There's six implications that I quickly want to go through this morning. Don't be afraid of the number there. I'll go through them quickly. Six things from this passage that I want to leave you with. The first is this, that sin is rejecting God as your Lord and Father. The biblical word sin is, there's a bunch of definitions, but part of it, the the gist of it is rejecting God as Lord and Father. Saying, Father, I don't want you. I don't want a relationship with you. I just want your gifts. I just want your stuff. And I want to go do my own thing. I want to be my own master. That was what the son was saying, right? To the father, he's like, listen, just give me, give me what I got coming to me. Give me my gifts. Give me my stuff. I don't want you. That is sin in a nutshell. I don't want God. I just want the things that he's given that are good in this world. But I do not want him. I want to be my own master. I want to do my own thing. You're as good as dead to me. Galatians five sixteen to 21 says this, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because that is sin. Sin is just basically saying, I do not want you, God. I want to be my own master and do my own thing. I'm going off to Susita. I'm going off the other side of the lake. I am going to live it up because I believe it's better over there. As Paul said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That is the payment that we get for our sin, is that separation from the Father. If we say to him, I don't want you, I want to be my own master, then he is a gentleman and he allows us to go and says, all right, go. Second implication is this, that sin is fun for a season until you find yourself in the pigsty. This is one of those <clears throat> um, pictures that I need you to keep. This is, this is an important picture to kind of keep, keep in your mind, you know, because the reason that sin is tempting is because there's, it's fun for a season until you find yourself in the pigsty longing to eat the pods that the pigs are eating and, and say, what am I doing here? How did I get here? a great picture to keep in mind, I'm telling you, because even if you are a follower of Jesus, you know, we all still fall short, we all still sin, and we all need to remember this, because the times when you wake up and you're like, what, how did I get here again? How did I end up in the pigsty again? What am I thinking? I mean, all addictions run this way, right? Yeah, they have their initial excitement and thrill, and then over time, you end up in the pigsty. And you're like, what am I doing? Why why am I here again? 
throwing up in the bathroom floor, you know, looking at my bank account and realizing I got no money left. Like, how did I get here again in the pigsty? You know, think about sex and lust outside the context of marriage, right? Thrilling for the minute. And then you wake up in the pigsty saying, how did I get here again? What am I doing? Why did I think this was going to be a good idea? You know, those who love gossip and just spreading rumors and ideas about other people, ruining people's reputation. And then one day you wake up and realize that nobody wants to be your friend anymore because of the way you talk about others. You say, how did I get here? Anger and bitterness feels good until that day again when you realize that you have just become a negative person, a bitter person. Keep this picture in your mind because this is such a good image that Satan's the type to, you know, present the bait and hide the hook, so to speak, right? Hey, dangle this in front of you. This is so much better than what God the Father has for you. Go after this, and then you get caught on the hook, and then you end up in the pigsty again, and you're saying, how did I end up here? What am I doing? And you come to your senses. And number three is this, coming to God involves repentance and faith. The younger son comes to his senses and says, what am I doing here? He remembers the kindness of his father and says, even the hired hands have enough. What am I doing in this pigsty when I could be hired back from my father, by my father? Romans chapter 2 verse 4 tells us that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Coming to our senses and realizing that God is good, that he has kindness that is more than anything this world has to offer. Mark chapter 4, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15 says, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Those two words, repent and believe, or repent and have faith, that's the nutshell, in a nutshell, what the gospel is. Repentance is turning around, it's coming to your senses and turning from sin and self-centeredness and turning to faith in God. Believing that... You are where life is found. Eternal life is found. You died for my sins. And coming back to the Father, the one that we rejected and said, I want to be my own master. You're as good as dead to me. Coming to God involves repentance and faith. Getting up out of that pigsty and turning back to the Father. The fourth thing is this. Your motives may be mixed, but it doesn't matter to God. I mean, let's be honest about this younger son. If the money had not run out, he would not have come home, right? He's only coming home because he's hungry, because there's a famine, because there's no money, because there's no friends. His motives are completely mixed. It's not that he is, you know what, I realized that I was wrong and that God is great and the Father is great and all this. Like he, it's the circumstances that have led him to this place. And I believe that's okay. No matter what your motives are, even if they are mixed. I mean, so many of us, if you look back at how you came to faith, you probably see some mixture in there of self-centeredness, you know? You were looking for something, believing that God could give it to you. There was some self-centeredness in there. So many of us even came to faith because of a girl or a boy, maybe, you know? It's kind of like, well, I like this girl, but she likes God and I... So maybe I need to get right with God so that I can get with her. And, you know, there, even there's that element that so many times our motives are mixed. But God the Father, 
even with his son with these mixed motives, runs out and welcomes him and welcomes him back. Just don't wait until your intentions are perfect. Just come. Come to him. Fifth is this, that God is far quicker to forgive and show grace than you would ever expect. This is why this story is so important to remember because if you believe that being a Christian means being a good person, then what happens when you're a bad person? You know, what happens when you fail? You're going to be like, well, I can't go back to church. Can't go back there because I'm a failure. I'm so much worse than everyone else now. I don't know, I can go back to God. I gotta I gotta you know, I gotta just get myself together. I gotta I gotta start doing some good things and getting my life back on track. But this parable shows you that that moment you are in the pigsty and you wake up and you come to your senses and you're like, What am I doing? The moment you sit back for home, it says God is like that father on the porch waiting for you to come home and the moment he sees you he runs out and he throws his arms around you and kisses you and puts his robe and ring and sandals and throws a party for you. My son was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. That is the picture of God that you need to have. Because if you're in that pigsty and you're like, well, I got to get my life together and I can't come home. I can't go back to the church. I can't go back to God. That's not God. God is the father on the porch waiting for you to turn around and come and ready to go and throw his arms around you and welcome you back. And please understand, this is not just a, you know, hey, 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 you know, it's no big deal. All right? He's not going to the sun and being like, hey, it's no big deal. You know, what you, eh. just forget about it. It's water under the bridge. That's not what we're talking about here. It was a costly forgiveness for the father. It cost him half of his estate. It cost the father in heaven his son's life to forgive us. He can welcome you back, not because you deserve it, but because Jesus took the punishment you deserved. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were in the pigsty, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And so again, it's not just that God the Father is like, eh, no big deal, you know. We all mess up. No. It is a big deal. The younger son's sin was a big deal. His rejection of the father was a big deal, and our sin is a big deal. But the father's ready to welcome us home, not because we deserve it, but because Jesus took the punishment we deserved. He took the penalty we deserved. He died in our place. And so in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21, Paul says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Come home. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus took our sin on the cross and gave us his right relationship with the Father so that when we get out of that pigsty and turn to come home, he can receive us not because of anything we've done, but because Jesus took our sin and our filth and our mud and all of that. He took the punishment we deserve and he gives us the right relationship with the Father that we don't deserve. So come home. Come home. 
I don't care what your motives are. Come home, turn around, get out of the pigsty and come to God this morning because there's a party waiting for you. There's a father so full of grace and love waiting for you to come out and run and welcome you and throw his arms around you. There's a son who took the punishment you deserved. You don't need to pick yourself up and get yourself together and make yourself right before you can come to God. Just come to God. The last implication is this. Looking at the older brother, moralistic living leaves you just as lost as immoral living. Listen, that older son thought he was right, but he missed out on the party. He didn't know the father. He was so angry, he missed out. And you can live your whole life thinking that you're right with God because you do good works like the older brother, and you have missed out. You don't know the father, and you've missed out on the party if that's what you think. Anyone who trusts in their good works, anyone who trusts in their good record, anyone who thinks that they are right with God because they've been working hard their whole life has missed the point. They've missed the heart of the Father. They've missed God's grace. They've missed the party. Remember Romans 3, 20 to 24. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. No one's going to be right because they worked hard in the fields their whole life. Through the law, we become conscious of sin. The law just shows us how short we have fallen of God's holy standard. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. A way to be right with God that doesn't depend on how we've done with observing the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned. Older brother and younger brother alike all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. At the heart of the Christian message, at the heart of the gospel, is this picture of God the Father waiting on that porch for his lost children to come to their senses and to turn around. And the minute they repent, he runs out to greet them and welcome them, forgive them, and give them full rights as a son or daughter again even though they've done nothing to deserve it because Jesus died in their place and took the punishment they deserved. The offer is there to you. Like the younger son, we have all said to the father, you're as good as dead to me and have gone off and squandered everything in wild living. Some more wild than others. But the father is waiting for you to come, to turn around and you are invited this morning. It's a two-way street. He's not going to force himself. Will you turn and come to God this morning? Whatever your motives are, whatever you have done, it is okay. Christ's death is big enough to cover all of your sins, and he will make you right with God again, give you the full rights of a son or daughter. So I encourage you to come home this morning. Let's take a little time in silence, and just between you and the Lord, Come home to him and come to him and then we'll respond in worship. Thank you for listening to the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. We are located at 1155 Silas Dean Highway in Weathersfield, Connecticut and can be found online at newlife-ct.org. No redistribution or use of any kind of this recording is allowed without express written consent of New Life Christian Fellowship. 